you would open your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 25. If you'll just kind of hold your finger there. I'll actually start reading in verse 18 to tie this all together. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning. So the title, as you can see, is To Mount Zion, See the Unshakable Kingdom, or just simply The Unshakable Kingdom. And while verses 25 through 29 don't explicitly mention Zion, we're still there. This is a carryover of the vision that the author places us in. He, he puts us in this contrast. You're not at Sinai, rather you are at Zion. And so verse 25 begins really practical implications for how we should live. And not just practical implications for our lives personally, but for the whole world. What does it mean that God has brought His people to Zion? We never leave Zion, even though we'll get into chapter 13, Lord willing, next week. We never leave Zion if you're in Christ. That's where you are. Even if the text we're talking about, where you are in your Bible study or your Bible reading plan or your devotion, you are there through faith, through union with Christ. And so the task that the author uh, summons us to is to live our lives by faith and not by sight, to really see where we are and to live like it is really true, or to live in such a way because it is true. And it just changes so much. So this text is a continuation, verses 25 through 29, are a continuation of what he's discussed so far about Zion. And he begins 
with this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The first thing you need to know, that we need to know, that everyone really needs to know about this unshakable kingdom is that it comes with a summons. It comes with a summons. And this is the connection point with the prior text. The life and death of Jesus, this is what we discussed last week regarding the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus, his life, his death, calls us, it summons us to a way of living. It summons us primarily, and for the author's purposes, to faithfulness, to perseverance, to not giving up on this Christian thing. It's just like Paul says in Philippians 3, the call of Christ, the summons of Christ, is the highest calling you can imagine. Paul says it this way, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is a summons. And so the author is saying, don't refuse him. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And so we must understand that you can refuse him. It is possible that you can refuse him who is speaking. Because otherwise he wouldn't say, see that you don't refuse him who's speaking. So what does this mean? What does it mean to refuse him? One way is when any time we reject the wisdom of God or the law of God, the commandments of Christ, and behave foolishly or sinfully, when we do that, we are in some sense refusing him who is speaking. We're not listening to him. Jesus says it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? There's, there's an inconsistency in your life. You say that I'm your Lord, but you don't live the way that I'm calling you to. We're refusing him who is speaking. Whenever we decide, I'll do it my way, like Frank Sinatra, and we decide we're going to go on like that and not listen to what God has said, we're refusing him. It, it is not impersonal. It is as if Jesus himself stands before us and says, live this way, love your neighbor as yourself. Live sacrificially for the kingdom. And we say no directly to his face. That's what sin is. We're refusing him who is speaking. His speaking, though, is not this moral policeman up in the sky telling us all the do's and don'ts. He's summoning us, just like he did to everyone who was in earshot when he walked this earth, when he says, come to me, come to me. Find in me life and everything else you need. And so his life and his death, everything about him calls to us to come to him. Right? It's not only about keeping commands or breaking commands. Do you hear his summons to come to him? Does it, does it cry out from the pages to you? Come to me. Make him your treasure. And then his summons to come to him, to imitate his life and to obey everything that he said will no longer feel as much a burden because his yoke is easy. His burden is light for those who treasure him, for those who want him, who desire him. So that's the first way that we can refuse him who is speaking. We just sin. We just don't listen to his commands. But there's another way of refusing him, and this is really what the author is talking about. There is a total or definitive rejection. 
that can take place. And really, on the one hand, it's not so different than the first type. The main difference, though, is that it just keeps on going. One decision to refuse him, to not listen to his command, to not heed his summons, to come to him, to not chase after him, to refuse to pursue him, to refuse to honor him. One decision turns into another and another and another, and eventually your heart is hardened. And eventually... All obedience, which should be a joy and a way of pursuing Christ, begins to feel like obligation. Is that happening in your heart where obedience to Christ feels more like obligation and burdensome and wearisome? What about that point of friction that you feel most challenged by to obey? You keep on refusing the speaking of his life and death, and you have less and less of a desire to rejoice in him. You have less and less of a desire to see him at all, and on and on and on it goes. And eventually, you come to where you're not so much refusing him who is speaking, you can't hear him at all. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't go that way. And maybe, if you're honest with yourself in this room, this is you, or you see that you're on the way there. And hopefully, that alarms you. So good news if it does. God is at work, even now, to bring this to your attention. The way to open your ears and your eyes and to begin to heed the voice of Him who is speaking is here in this very message. Christ summons you now to abandon hope and everything else and listen to his summons and persevere in faith and holiness. Verse 20, the second half of 25, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So the second thing we need to know about this kingdom is is the unshakable kingdom must not be rejected. It's similar to what we saw earlier. Don't refuse him who is speaking, but the whole kingdom itself can be rejected. So, what we've seen, and this is why I started reading in verse 18, we've seen Sinai, or that which may be touched compared to Zion. We've heard the speaking of the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And he gives us a summons to listen to his voice, to to follow his example and persevere like Christ did. And now, before we get to the beautiful description of this glorious kingdom that cannot be shaken, we get what can't be interpreted any other way than a severe warning. And Why would this be? Have we really left Sinai? In in a sense, the author amps up the severity. It's even more intense than Sinai now. So you see, in the comparison of the first mountain, or Sinai, versus Zion, it's not like we're getting less of anything. There's There's not a lessening of the holiness of God or anything else. Just like in the New Testament, 
When you meet Jesus, you see more grace and mercy than you've ever seen, but you also see more discussion of hell and justice and wrath than you have heard from anyone in the, in the Old Testament. Everything is amped up. It's more. It's not less of anything. At Zion, we have more access to God than anyone at Sinai did. There's more joy, there's more holiness, there's more justice, there's more glory, there's more festival, etc., etc., etc. And therefore, there's a more severe warning. Because the severity of loss is greater. The risk, like the, the risk profile, if you will, of what you could lose is far more. And it's irreversible. If you reject him who warns from heaven. So who is the they? For if they did not escape. Who, who are we talking about? And who did they refuse? The, the one who refused him on earth. This is a reference just in short. We won't uh, dig into this in full. But it's a reference to the people when they rejected the promised land. And there's some similarity and some difference. And the author actually sees the people right before they enter the promised land as, as a good analogy for us, the people of God now. We're right there. We've just yet to cross the river. The, the, the land is theirs, ours to take. Zion is here. We are here. So don't refuse him who is speaking. The people refused Moses. He warned them not to reject God's summons to be obedient and to take the land. So Jesus is mediating the new covenant and he warns us, the author says, from heaven not to fail to obtain this. The main difference between that situation of the people and Moses and the taking of the land and Jesus and the new covenant and us taking Zion forever is intensity. If they did not escape, much less will we escape. And it harkens back to uh, a more holistic comparison. In chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, this is what the author said. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. And even further back, I actually want you to go to this one. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, referring to the Old Testament, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or obedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, meaning Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. If they didn't escape when they refused Moses with all of His power, that vision of Sinai, how much less will we escape if we reject the summons of the life of Jesus? See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. 
So, even though it sounds grim, what the author is saying is that the severity of the law for those who are faithless is just a preview. It's, it's truncated. It's smaller. How much less will we escape? How much greater a punishment will be deserved by those who reject the one who is speaking? So you can reject the gift of this unshakable kingdom. Please don't. And how can we make sure that we don't? The author answers this question. How can we make sure that we don't reject him who is speaking? He answers it in the next verses. And it's not, the the simple answer is not, well, just be holy or do better. Be a better person. Be a better Christian. Be a better mom, a better father, a better brother or sister. Just be good so that you don't reject the kingdom. What he does is he helps us get the perspective off of ourselves and makes us look at what God has done. He reminds us of what God himself is up to and what he has done and what he has promised to do. If you want to make sure you don't reject this unshakable kingdom, behold your God and behold his wondrous works. And so he begins to describe what exactly this unshakable kingdom is and why it is inevitable and how it is that we can have it and enter it. Verse 26, back in chapter 12. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. It's a big chunk, and we're going to try to take it all together, and it is one argument, so it is right to take it all together. But here's what we need to know. The unshakable kingdom will be revealed at the end of all things. This is a quotation from Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6. This is what it says in our English versions. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I want you to see the logic of this passage. This is fascinating. So he's quoting Haggai, where God says, Yet once more. So, so you have this context where things have been shaken in the past, specifically for the author of Hebrews. The whole earth shook, or at least where, where God descended around Mount Sinai, the earth shook. And God promises through the prophet Haggai, I will shake the heavens yet once more. The earth and the heavens, everything is going to be shaken yet once more. And the author looks closely at that statement yet once more and therefore claims the end is coming. Because You can't shake it again after God says, yet once more. It's just one more time God is going to descend and shake everything. Therefore, the things that remain after God shakes it, yet once more, are unshakable. You see that? That's the logic. It's it's a little bit difficult to pick up, but this demonstrates us how carefully you should read your Bible. 
That one phrase, he says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. Anything that can be shaken has to be removed, is no longer around, because God is only going to shake the universe one more time. So everything after the fact is unshakable. That's how carefully you should read your Bible. Where you can have such confidence in what God is going to do and such clarity about what the nature of our eternal home will be on one phrase. And he's talking about the end of all things. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to sound like a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And I want to distance myself from the guys who hold up signs saying the end is near just as much as anyone But we just don't talk about the end of all things nearly enough. And those who are overly obsessed with the end or end times show by the things that matter to them, politics, possessions, and prepping, that they don't really mean the same thing that we mean or that the Bible means when it speaks of the end. What is the end of all things? The end of the world will not be a nuclear war. It will not be one world government. It will not be the end of America. It will not be the zombie apocalypse. It will not even be a worse pandemic or global bankruptcy. It will not be depression or war or an alien invasion. Many of those will never happen. And those that will are yet but the birth pains. But the end is not yet. The end, brothers and sisters, is when the age of the ingathering of the Gentiles comes to a close. And the ark of salvation that is Jesus Christ, the door is shut forever. And then God himself will so utterly shake the entire universe, that only that which is covered by the blood of His Son will remain. This is why, as an aside for the Lord's Supper, we don't so much point back to Passover as much as we, in hope, believe that we have access to the real blood of the real Lamb through faith. Even the first Passover was but a preview And when the day of the Lord comes, and it will, it will not be the angel of death passing through a specific geographic location in Africa. And it will not be just the firstborn who are at risk. It will be God Himself passing through the midst of all creation, even heaven itself, and anything not covered reconciled to God through the blood of His Son, will be taken away forever. I want you to turn to 2 Peter 3. First and 2 Peter may be our next major exegetical study sometime later this year. And this is one of the reasons. 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The shaking of Sinai that took place then and there on that mountain where the rocks began to split in half is just a preview. Because Zion exists, because there is an eternal rest for the people of God, because there is a place for those who are covered by the blood of His Son, everything else is going to be shaken What makes Zion so great is that in the very place where Mount Sinai began to break in half, there Zion stands unshakable. As all this that I just read is going out through all the universe, as they're dissolved and burned, Mount Zion stands firm. Two things more to note about this passage. It says, uh, that is, the things that are made. Look at it indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. Everything that is not God is shakable, is transient, is conditional, is breakable. And so, how is it that we endure? Because we're created, we're, we're not God. How is it that we're, we're going to survive through this great shaking of the entire universe? That's why I said earlier, that it is only the things covered by the blood of Christ and reconciled to Him through Christ's work that will remain. Seen in this way, salvation from God is Him giving to you permission and in even inviting you to lash your boat with the mooring lines of faith to the unshakable rock that is Christ Jesus. That's what salvation is. The end is coming. The day of the Lord approaches. And I'm sorry it makes me sound crazy to say that. But this is the foundation of our hope. That faith in Christ means that we have access to grab onto the unshakable rock of Christ himself. Through faith then, during this great cataclysm of God utterly shaking shaking the world, you are treated through your faith union with Christ as an uncreated one. You're not treated in the coming day of the Lord as something that can be shaken and taken away. You're covered by the blood of the eternal covenant, safe and secure. And nothing can separate us. The second thing to note before we move on, it must take place. It's inevitable. Look at it closely. Yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The image is almost that of a chrysalis. You have shakable, breakable, temporary things on the outside, and the new, what's going to live on past that moment, 
on the inside. The shakable, breakable, tarnishable stuff has to be removed in order that what is living, what's going to last, will be revealed and shown. The things that cannot be shaken will remain. And the world that the sons and daughters of God will inherit will never fully come until all that is futile and broken is taken away. The end of all things, the great and awesome day of the Lord is inevitable. And I hope you live your life like that. Do you live your life like that? That the day of the Lord is inevitable. It is more sure than tomorrow. Christian maturity, indeed, is living like it's actually going to happen. And that it doesn't matter how long it's going to take. Regardless of how long it's going to take, it is yet but a little while. Even all the way back to the prophet Haggai, yet once more, in a little while. And I will shake everything. So how should we then live? Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So the next thing we need to know for sure and be grounded in is that the unshakable kingdom creates gratitude now in your life. Just as Jesus says to his disciples, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is right before he's going to go to the cross and die and everything's going to look disastrous and bleak and depressing. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And it's not just some ethereal kingdom in heaven somewhere. Once all that is shakable, breakable, futile is removed, we will have a new heavens and a new earth. It's real. So let us be grateful. Because this is true, since this is true, the dominant note of the Christian life is gratitude. And sometimes it's just so hard to maintain a posture of gratitude, is it not? There are so many things that happen and we let our eyes focus on what's going on in our immediate sphere and how it will affect us tomorrow or the next year or the next decade. Things going on in the world right now. Things not going the way we would like with our children. Things not going the way we would like with our marriages. Things not going the way we would like with our job. And we just get bitter and we grumble and we're ungrateful all the time. (laughs) Or is this just me? There are so many reasons for gratitude. But let's focus on what the author is saying here. Why should we be grateful? Therefore, let us be grateful. The first reason I think that he says as he describes this unshakable kingdom, this kingdom that we received, is number one, the, it, it is a contrast between the insecurity, instability, and transient nature of the world. Almost everything that seemed secure and sure in this world has in the last 12 months been shown to be flimsy paper mache, has it not? 
more than any other time in my lifetime. Everything that seemed like a given in the world is now up in question. And the responsibility of the Christian should not be primarily or even significantly to double down and try to strengthen or save what is left in this shakable world, but to be so very thankful that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It can't even be shaken. There are so many things that draw our attention away. We want to focus on and try to save and try to make continue. That would be like going back to your house to grab your stuff while the door to the ark is closing. The reality is, brothers and sisters, you've been given a seat there, a place, a room, a, a home in the ark that is Christ's salvation. Don't pedal around with stuff and the things of this life that are crumbling even as we speak. Further, just as we look at the world, as we really understand what's going on, all the corruption, all the darkness that gets exposed to us occasionally, sometimes the world just pulls the veil back and we can see how really dark and evil this world is. We can be grateful because this evil world, this cursed world, should be shaken and removed. There's a joy and a gratitude that comes from the fact that God will vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked. But the second main reason that we should be grateful is that it cannot be shaken. He doesn't say the unshakable kingdom as I've termed it. That's, that's the way I've termed this sermon just to make it shorter. But the kingdom that cannot be shaken is what he says. It's not that it will be. It's not, it's not that nothing will happen in the future to shake it. It's not that if it is shaking, shaken, we'll have a good insurance policy. It's not that if it begins to crumble, we'll call on our warranty. It's not if it begins to fall apart, we can call a constitutional convention of the states and fix everything. There are no safeguards. There's no emergency equipment. There's no fail-safes. There's no lifelines. There's no backup plans. There's no fire retardant materials. There's no code to make sure it doesn't kill anybody when it starts to crumble down or burn. Why? Because it cannot be shaken. This kingdom that you have, that you've been given, let us be grateful for receiving this kingdom that can't be shaken. It is philosophically, theologically impossible for the kingdom of God to be shaken. There is nothing that can or will happen in unending eons of the eternal day in the presence of God that can even come close to sending a slight tremor through the foundations of that kingdom. It will not be shaken. It cannot be shaken. And the great cure for discouragement, this is why he's saying we should be grateful. The great cure for discouragement, for depression, for sorrow, for suffering, for pain of almost any kind, for confusion, for frustration, for the futility of this life, for anxiety, for so many other things. The cure is gratitude. 
And the great cause of gratitude is to see this unshakable kingdom that God has given us. Many other things may help with those things I just listed. They may help a little bit and in a temporary way. But the real cure for your soul in the midst of that suffering is gratitude. So gratitude is the first application. The first thing that we should do. If you can call gratitude something that we should do. Let us be grateful, he says. That's the first thing. Now the second half of verse 28. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The last thing you need to know about this unshakable kingdom is that it creates a life of worship. Having received this, having been given this kingdom, it creates a life of worship. And so we see this contrast between acceptable worship and the implication of unacceptable worship. We'll go through a few comparisons about what makes for acceptable worship, what makes for unacceptable worship through this text. All of these are based on the text. The first thing that clarifies what acceptable worship is, is that it has its roots in gratitude, in thankfulness. He says, thus, thus, or in this way, let us offer to God acceptable worship. So he's referring back to gratitude. It's easy to miss if you're just reading your Bible quickly. Thus, let us offer to God. Here's how one translator put it. Let us be thankful, and through thankfulness, let us worship God. That's what he's saying. The right foundation for all true worship is gratitude. The rule and reign of God extends even to your thoughts and feelings. We ought to be grateful. And when we are grouchy and bitter and ungrateful and holding pity parties in our mind, as we're also prone to do, I think we won't worship very well or at all. This is not a sermon about gratitude, but the the text holds up in front of our face what we have been given and the ground of our gratitude. And on the basis of that, that is how we offer acceptable worship to God. The second thing this text says about acceptable worship. Acceptable worship is in unity with your brothers and sisters. Unacceptable worship is viewed as only a private matter. He says, let us... The summons is to do it together. The quality of worship for you is in part determined by how much you work to bring others along with you in the worship of God. How hard you work to ensure that everyone is operating from a heart of gratitude. How much you speak the word of Christ and make sure it dwells richly within your brothers and sisters. This is a us together matter. And I'll never stop beating that dead horse. It's us, together, it must be. I don't even know if it's a dead horse anymore, but that is a point you've got to latch onto. It is us, together, let us do this. If you're just out there doing it by yourself, like a monk, privately, alone, I'm not saying you can't do anything alone, but real worship, the trajectory of worship that we see in the Revelation to John is all of us, together, before the throne. We should portray that in how we seek to worship. The third thing that we see about acceptable worship here is that acceptable worship does not stop. Unacceptable worship 
is sectioned off from the rest of life. This is indicated in the verbs he chooses to use. He says, therefore, let us offer. The the type of verb he used indicates a continual offering. Thus, let us continually offer up acceptable worship. So don't stop. Worship is not a song service or even a sermon or a devotional time. It is all of it. It's like Paul says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, and anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So yes, cleaning the toilet in faith is worship. And giving your body to be burned, not in faith or love, is sin. How can we maintain this posture of worship throughout all life? Is it just me, or does that seem a little exhausting, that we're always meant to be worshiping God throughout every moment of our life, every conscious moment? How can we maintain that? It's answered, I think, in the next comparison. Acceptable worship is intentional and often costly. Unacceptable worship is passive and cheap. He says, let us offer. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. We don't bring anything to the table right, on our own. Paul rebukes the Corinthians who think they're all that in a bag of potato chips, and he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? Like everything you have, even your heart to love God is given to you by God. As he works within us to will and to do His good pleasure. But on the other hand, we are meant to offer something to God. Worship is something that is given. The example, I think, that stands out in the Old Testament is when David took the census. Do you remember the story? And it was sinful, and people started dying because he chose the plague. It's better to fall into the hands of God than in the hands of my enemy. And God goes out through the nation and starts killing the people because of Israel's sin and David leading them into sin. And God relents, and he tells David to go offer up a sacrifice at the home of a Jebusite, actually. And as he's going up, the guy who owns this plot of land, this Jebusite, comes to him and says, Hey, whatever you want is yours. Just just offer to the Lord a sacrifice. Don't pay me for anything. And here's what David says. No, but I will buy it from you at a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. One of the reasons, I think, why the church in the United States is not a force to be reckoned with for God's glory and why no one in the mainstream really takes us very seriously or takes serious note of the type of life we live is that we embrace a model of church where everything is easy and we can be consumers And that number of consumer Christians can grow and grow and grow until no one's really offering anything anymore. It's no longer sacrifice. It's comfortable, safe, organized, stylized, peaceful, brisk, short, easy, and cheap. If there was as much a lack of air conditioning and heating and indoor plumbing as there is in third world churches, here, would there be here as many Christians as there are there? Something to think about, but we'll move on. The next thing we see about acceptable worship is that it is reverent. 
irreverence of any kind is unacceptable worship. The only other place in the New Testament where this specific word reverence that's being translated reverence for us here is actually translated modesty in the other place. It speaks of honor or respect or thought or deliberate care or a consciousness of the consequences, really thinking about how your actions are going to unfold and how is it going to affect other people and how does God view this? It's self-reflexive. It is, it is thinking. God is not honored by a haphazard life, a haphazard church or half-hearted seeking of Him. He says in Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me if, You seek me with your whole heart. Irreverence or half-heartedness or haphazardness are such a temptation for us, especially in this time, because it's easy and safe and comfortable, and we can be. And a show is put on for us, so we can just show up, for the most part, and experience it. World-class productions you can find at some churches. You don't have to do anything. Just sit there and watch. Your whole life is sacred to the Lord. He has made even your body the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when we gather, we're we're supposed to image or show that we are, in fact, the body of Christ. Do we do so in a reverent way to show that, yes, in fact, this is what we are. We are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should give off the aroma of Christ in anything and everything that we do. And the quickest way to do that is this, this next thing he says. He says, with reverence and awe. Acceptable worship is filled with awe. A lack of awe is not worshipful. This is what's being translated here with reverence and awe. This is one place where almost every English translation of the New Testament fudges a bit. Because the word is fear. Some translations render it godly fear. But that's just inserting another word to try and make it a little more palpable. This is what one commentator said. In context, it signifies the fear of a Christian before an imminent peril, namely before the judgment of God. Is that not the direction that the text is going? For our God is a consuming fire? Why do we fudge on that word? Fear. Does it make us too uncomfortable to think of God as a being to be feared? Not all fear is sinful. In fact... The truth is that fear of anything that is not God is sinful. And so when we think of fear, I think this is why we fudge on that word, why we don't like that word, is because our context, our, our way of thinking about fear is, is inseparable, inseparable from our sinful experience of fear. It would be like those who had a horrible relation with, relationship with their father telling them, God is your father, Right? There's a negative association with that word. So for all of us, regardless of your life, regardless of your relationship with anyone, we have sinful fear, fear of man, fear of death, fear of anything that is not God. And so when we hear you're supposed to fear God, we have all those negative associations. But that's inverted. However, the main problem, the main root, at least in Paul's account of what leads to every sin, 
Grammatically, as he flows through the description of what fallen humanity is like, he ends with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The root problem is you don't fear God. Not as you should. And it's difficult to explain the fear of the Lord. Because it's not an equation or syllogism, but it's something that must be part of our worship. One night, I went out. This was in Texas. I don't know if you can do this here. I might get eaten or something. Uh, grizzly. But I went out in the middle of the field in Texas. And the sky in Texas is better, just by the way, you know. <laughs> and I laid there on the grass, and it was a particularly clear night. And I be- could begin to see, as my eyes continually adjusted, further recesses of stars that weren't uh, observable when I first laid down. I lay there for probably 30 minutes just gazing into the stars, into the sky. And the experience I had at an emotional level can't be described by any other word than fear. As you realize that you are just stuck by a force called gravity that we don't even understand on the side of a little speck of dust flung through the cosmos and I'm there laying on it looking out into infinite miles of space. Of grandeur. The same experience happens when you go swimming in a lake where they're not even sure how deep it is. Hundreds and hundreds of feet of water. It's not that you're fear, uh, fearful of jaws coming up and getting you. It's just that the, there's bigness. It's huge. I can't fathom it. It's terrifying in some sense, but it's not like fear of man. It's just different. The, the fear of God is something like that. Something like that. But so much more. And here's how we can have it. He says, For our God is a consuming fire. Acceptable worship is focused on the blazing center of God Himself. Anything that is not focused on the majesty of God is unacceptable worship. It's been said that idolatry is thinking any thoughts that are unworthy of God, but I would extend that to emotions and feelings. If you feel that He is small, if your, if your emotions toward Him do not revere Him, and if, if it is not filled with reverence and, and fear, then it's, it's unworthy of Him. It's a type of idolatry. What is this consuming fire that He refers to? Is this, what, what is He saying? Two places in Deuteronomy where this specific word is used. Chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And in chapter 9, verse 3. Therefore know today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them, the other nations, and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and take them and, and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So here we have two senses of what it means for our God to be a consuming fire. The first is, his con- the fact that He is a consuming fire shows His jealousy and His passion for His holiness and the praise that is due to Him from His people. That's one sense of what God being a consuming fire is. The second sense of God being a consuming fire is that He brings good for His people. He goes as a consuming fire before them to drive out the other nations to bring them into the good land. And both of these senses, as we 
really draw this to a close, are seen in the cross. And both of these are seen in the unshakable kingdom. Understand this. The reason we need an unshakable kingdom isn't because the world out there is falling apart. It's because God is a consuming fire. And only that which is unshakable can last in His presence. In His full, unveiled glory, only that which is covered by the blood of His Son, a part of this eternal covenant, will even be able to stand. And that's what the cross accomplishes. The full holiness, full posture of consuming fire, fierceness of God, landing on the Lord Jesus Christ in your place so that through Him, you can stand in the presence of the one who is a consuming fire. Even if you have wanted nothing to do with God or a life of worship up to this point, Through faith in Christ, this entire unshakable kingdom is yours. It's all yours. You are summoned this day by the speaking of the life and death of Jesus to have this unshakable kingdom. This is the promise for those who love him. Maybe you need to reignite a life of pursuit of him. Or gratitude for having been given this unshakable kingdom. See it. See that He, through Christ, has given it to you. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, it would be inaccurate to say that we stand in awe of you because I don't know the hearts of everyone here. Help us stand in awe of you. Help us have real holy fear of you that leads to full gratitude, full celebration, full joy because of what you have done in your son Jesus. Help us View you, your grandeur, your majesty, your unending knowledge, your eminence, your power. And may that create in us a heart of grateful worship. In Jesus' name, amen.